Welcome to tape number five of Truth, Victory Over Error, or the True Principles of the Christian Religion by David Dixon. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Truth, Victory Over Error by David Dixon, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing our reading from chapter 15 of Repentance, question number 5. Is there is every man bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof? Yes. Psalm 51, verses 4, 5, 7, and 9. Psalm 32, verses 5 and 6. Well then, do not the antinomians, libertines, and Anabaptists err who maintain that those who are once justified are not any more obliged to confess their sins, to be grieved for them, or to repent of them? Yes. By what reason are they confuted? First, because whosoever doth call upon God the Father in their prayers, they ought to seek daily remission of sin. Luke 11, verses 2, 3, and 4. Second, because God doth commend the serious confession of sins and grief for them in justification and delighteth therein. Jeremiah 31, verse 18, 19, and 20. Luke 7, verse 44. Isaiah 66, verse 2. Third, because pardon of those sins which justified persons shall confess is promised. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Psalm 32, verse 5. 1 John 1, verse 9. Fourth, because such are declared blessed that mourn. Matthew 5, verse 4. Fifth, because in whom the Spirit dwelleth it worketh in them, being greatly weighed, with the burden of their sins, a continual groaning and sorrow for the same. Romans 7, 23 and 24. Romans 8, verse 26. Six, because true repentance is the renewing of the image of God lost, at least greatly defaced by the committing of sin, which in sanctification is not perfected but only begun, and doth daily increase through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Ephesians 4:19-24. Seventh, from the example of justified persons as David, Josiah, Peter, and others who after justification confess their sins, grieve for them, and beg pardon. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, Psalm 51, 2 Kings 22, verse 19, Nehemiah 9 from the beginning, Mark 14, verse 72. Question 6. Do those who confess their sins privately to God, who pray for the pardon thereof, and forsake them, obtain mercy? Yes. Proverbs 28, verse 13, and 1 John 1, 9. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that besides confession of sins made to God, and forsaking of them, an auricular confession, and enumeration of all particular sins committed after baptism, must be made to our own proper priest as a necessary means for obtaining remission of them? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the psalmist says, Who can understand his heirs? Psalm 19, verse 29. And they being more than the hairs of our head, how can they be multiplied over to a priest? Excuse me, mumbled over to a priest. Psalm 50, 40, verse 12. Second, because Christ gave an absolution without an enumeration of every sin, Matthew 9, verse 2. 
Neither doth he demand an enumeration of all our several sins, though we be obliged to reckon and rehearse all that we are able to remember. Luke 8, verse 48. Luke 18, verses 13 and 14. Third, because there is no command or example in Scripture for any man to whisper and round his sins into the ear of a priest, and therefore it not being a faith, it is sin. Romans 14, verse 23. Fourth, because whosoever turneth from his sin to God and confesseth them, he findeth mercy presently. Ezekiel 18, verses 21 and 28. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Question 7. Ought he who scandalized his brother or, or the church of Christ to be willing by a private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those who are offended? Yes. James 5, verse 16. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Joshua 7, verse 19. Psalm 51, throughout. And 2 Corinthians 2, verse 8. Well then, do not the novations err? Again, that's N-O-V-A-T-I-A-N-S. Err, and others too who maintain that those who have offended their brother or the church of Christ are not obliged to declare their repentance to the parties offended and that those who are offended ought not to require any such thing as private or public confession and acknowledge but presently they ought to be received without doing any such thing yes do not likewise some churchmen err who connive and wink at the public scandals especially of the richer and better sort yes and lastly, do not many in these times err who jeer and make a mock of, at all public confessions of sin? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because he that offendeth his brother ought to return to him, saying, I repent. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Second, because Christ did even value so much a private man's offense that he was not to be admitted to the altar with his gift, until he was reconciled to his brother, Matthew 5:24. Third, because the incestuous person was not to be received into the communion of the church of Corinth before he had evidenced his repentance by satisfying the church. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Fourth, because public confession of sin glorifies God, Joshua 7, verse 19. Fifth, because those who sin must be rebuked before all, that others also may fear. 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. Question 8. Are those who are offended bound to be reconciled to the offending party by declaring his repentance and ought they in love to receive him? Yes. 2 Corinthians 2, 8. Well then, do not the Novatians and Anabaptists err who maintain that professors of religion, falling into public scandal, especially in denying the truth in the time of persecution, are no more to be received into the church even though they repent? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because Christ says, If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Second, for a heathen and publican, that is, one casting out from the communion of the church, he only is to be esteemed who neglecteth to hear the church. Matthew 18, verse 17. Third, because such as have offended the church after submission to the church's censure ought to be comforted, the church ought to make their love known to them and receive them again into communion, lest, happily, they grieve and sorrow increasing, they may be swallowed up. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 7 and 8. Fourth, because if a man be overtaken in a fault, they who are spiritual ought to restore such as one in the spirit of meekness, considering themselves, lest they also be tempted. Galatians 6, verse 1. Fifth, because if men, repenting of their faults, committed against their brethren and fellow Christians, be not received into the communion of the church, both they and the church are in hazard, lest Satan, by his devices, gain an advantage of them. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10. 
6. Because Miriam, who for her sedition against Moses, was shut out of the camp seven days, was brought in again. Numbers 12, verse 15. So was the incestuous person received into the communion of the church. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 8. Chapter 16 of Good Works. Question 1. Are good works only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof, as devised by men out of blind zeal upon any pretense of good intention? Yes. Micah 6, verse 8. Romans 12. Hebrews 12, verse 21. Matthew 15, verse 9, with Samuel 15, verses 21, 22, and 23, Isaiah 29, verse 13, 1 Peter 1, verse 18, and Romans 10, verse 2. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that not only such works are good, which are done according to the will and law of God, but others also which are commanded by the public authority of the church, though over and above what the law of God requires, and that those also are good works, which are done out of a good intention to advance God's glory or to perform worship to him, though they be not commanded by God? Yes. Do not likewise the old and late libertines who maintain that the difference between good works and evil depend only upon the private and particular opinion of every man. For they think that no work ought to be called evil, but insofar as he doth that doeth it, think it evil. Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because good works are described by the apostle to be such as God before hath ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Second, because God expressly commands that every man must not do that which seems good in his own eyes, but only such works as he hath commanded, and must neither add thereto nor diminish from it. Deuteronomy 12, verses 8 and 32. Proverbs 30, verse 6. Revelation 22, verse 16. Third, because the Lord openly testifies that in vain do they worship him, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, not requiring that will worship which fantastic men would give him. Isaiah 1, verse 13, Matthew 15, verse 9, Micah 6, verse 6, 7, and 8, Colossians 2, verse 23. Fourth, because the scribes and Pharisees are severally rebuked by Christ that made the commandments of God of no effect by their traditions. Matthew 15, verse 6. And it is often mentioned in the book of Kings and Chronicles as a fault in the kings of Judah that the high places were not taken away. And how severally were the Israelites punished for their worshipping of the golden calf, Exodus 32, and for worshipping the calves which Jeroboam set up at Dan and Bethel, all know. 1 Kings 12:28. Fifth, because the law of God is the perfect rule, and square of good works to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Isaiah 8, verse 20. 6. Because without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11, verse 6. But faith hath always a respect to the word of God. Question 2. Are good works done in obedience to God's commandments the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith? Yes, James 2, verses 18 and 22. Well then, do not the antinomians and libertines err who deny that believers ought to make evident to themselves and others the truth of their justification by good works as fruits of a true and lively faith? Yes. By what reason are they confuted? First, because Christ says, By their fruits you shall know them, for a good tree bringeth forth good fruit. Matthew 7, verses 16, 17, and 18. Because we are commanded to make sure our calling and election by good works, as by the fruits of faith. 2 Peter 1, verses 5, 6, 10, and 11. Third, because in Scripture there are delivered many undoubted and sure marks of regeneration taken from the fruits of faith and good works. 
1 John 1, 6 and 7, and 1 John 2, verse 3, and 1 John 3, verse 9, 10, and 14. Question 3. Is our ability to do good works wholly from the Spirit of Christ and not at all from ourselves? Yes, and that we may be enabled thereunto besides the graces already received. Is there not required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure? Yes, John 15, verses 4 and 6, Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27, Philippians 2, verse 13, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Well then, do not the Pelagians err who maintain that good works done by the strength of our free will are conformed to the law of God and worthy of the kingdom of heaven? Yes. Do not likewise the Papists err who maintain that good works may be done by a mere general and common influence from God? Yes. Do not lastly the Armenians err who maintain that good works flow only from God as a moral cause? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because Christ says, You can do nothing without me. John 15, verse 5. Second, because of ourselves we are not able to think a good thought. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Third, because it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verse 13. Question 4. Are they who are regenerated to grow negligent as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless by special motion of the Spirit? No. Ought they not to stir up diligently the grace of God which is in them? Yes. Philippians 2, verse 12. Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 5 and 10. Isaiah 65, verse 7. 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, Acts 26, verse 6 and 7, Jude, verses 20, 21, and 22. Well then, do not the Quakers, Familists, and other giddy-headed persons err who maintain that believers ought not to perform any duty in religion unless the Spirit within move and excite them to those duties and that we ought to forbear when this is wanting or lacking? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the Holy Ghost forbiddeth us to be slow in performing such duties. Nay, commands us to stir up the gift which is in us and use all diligence to perform duties commanded by himself. Philippians 2, verse 12, Jude, verse 20. Second, because the prophet confesses that as the great sin of the Lord's people, that there is none that calleth upon his name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of him. Isaiah 64, verse 7. Third, because to neglect the worshiping of God is an evident sign and token of an atheist. Psalm 14, verse 4, and Psalm 53, verses 4. Fourth, because the Lord hath threatened to pour out his fury upon the heathen that know him not, and upon the families that call not on his name. Jeremiah 10, verse 25. Fifth, because the twelve tribes which hoped to come to the promise made to the fathers instantly served God day and night. Acts 26, verses 6 and 7. And the apostles gave themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Acts 6, verse 4. Sixth, because Christ himself who had always the Spirit, was very frequent in those all those exercises and duties as all the histories of the four evangelists do testify. Those fanatic recuse, recusants, that's R-E-C-U-S-A-N-T-S, either have the Spirit of God in them or they lack it. This last they will not grant. If they have it, why do they refuse to perform the duties of religion more than our blessed Savior did? when opportunity and occasion did call him. They have the spirit, but want or lack the impulse. But contrarywise, this impulse is never wanting or lacking when there is a call, but the spirit wanting when opportunity is offered. Seven, 
because Christ will have the gospel preached to every creature, Mark 16, verse 15, and have commanded the administration of the Lord's Supper even to his second coming, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, and have the work of the ministry to continue in his church for the perfecting of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, Ephesians 4, verses 11, 12, and 13. 8. Because we are commanded to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. That is upon all opportunities and in all our necessities. 9. Because we are commanded to trust in Him at all times. Psalm 62, verse 8. 10. If we shall forbear outward duties as prayer and such like, then ought we to forbear inward exercises as acts of faith, love, and fear till we be moved thereunto, which is most absurd. For we are commanded, as was cited, to trust in him always. 11. What assurance can men have the next hour or tomorrow more than in the present time of the Spirit's motion on their souls, or that they shall be thus at a greater advantage by putting off the duty till they have some inward motion and impulse thereunto than by waiting on the ordinary call of the word or of providence. Question 5. Are they who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life so far from being able to super arrogate and to do more than God requires that they shall fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do? Yes. Luke 17, verse 10, Nehemiah 13, verse 22, Galatians 5, 17, Job 9, verse 2 and 3. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that a man regenerated can not only fulfill the law of God perfectly, but may do also more good than the law of God requires of him. This is their mad fancy of the works of supererogation. For the listener's benefit, supererogation is spelled S-U-P-E-R-E-R-R-O-G-A-T-I-O-N. By what reason are they confuted? First, because no man living is able to fulfill the whole law of God. Psalm 143, verse 2, Isaiah 64, verse 6, 1 John 1, verse 8. Far less is any man able to do more than the law requires. Second, because we are obliged to seek remission of sins every day. Matthew 6, verse 12. But to seek pardon of sin every day and to perform works of supererogation are inconsistent together. Third, because Christ says, When you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, Say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Luke 17, verse 10. Fourth, because according to this doctrine of works of supererogation, we must accuse the scriptures and law of God of imperfection as if they were not a perfect rule of life and manners, which is contrary to the psalmist, Psalm 19, verse 8, and contrary to 2 Timothy 3, verse 15 and 17, Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. Fifth, because whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, these are commanded as things necessary to all men. Therefore, either the works which the papists call works of supererogation are true, honest, just, and pure, and if they be such, they are commanded by God in Scripture, and not works of supererogation. For they are unhonest, impure, unjust, and if such, then no man is so mad as to call them good works, much less works of supererogation. Philippians 4, verse 8. Question 6. Can our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hands of God? No. Romans 3, verse 20. Romans 4, verse 2, 4, and 6. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. Titus 3, verse 5, 6, and 7, Romans 8, 18, Psalm 16, verse 2, Job 22, verses 2 and 3. Well then, do not the papists and some of the Quakers err who maintain that the good works of regenerate men do truly and properly merit and deserve eternal life? 
yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because there is no proportion between our imperfect work and life eternal, between the work and the reward. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For our light affliction worketh for us, that is, brings forth, not of any merit, but of mere grace, for Christ's sake. See Romans 8, verse 18, and Romans 3, verse 28. Second, if by our good works we deserve the pardon of sin, we might have whereof to boast. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Romans 4, verse 2. But the scripture saith, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31. Third, because no creature performing the most excellent works can deserve any favor from God or oblige him to give anything as due. And according to the order of God's justice, he can receive no favor from us, nor any creature confer any benefit on him. Psalm 16, verse 2. Job 22, verse 2 and 3. Truly, where there is no favor done, there can be no merit. For merit presupposes a benefit accepted. Fourth, because our works are imperfect as well as to parts as to degree. Galatians 5.17 and Isaiah 64, verse 7. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. A perfection of parts is when we have a part of every grace and the renewed in and are renewed in some measure in every power and faculty of the whole man, though we be not come to the just and due measure in any of them. A perfection of degrees consists in the complete measure of our conformity and our exact correspondence to the law of God in respect of all whatsoever it requires. Fifth, because Christ says so likewise ye when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you say we are unprofitable servants we have done that which was our duty to do Luke 17 verse 10 6 because the good works which we do are not ours but it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6 Galatians 5 22 Philippians 2 13 7. Because that heavenly blessedness which is to be given to the saints is expressly attributed to the mercy and pity of God. Psalm 103, verse 4, Matthew 5, verse 7, Titus 3, verse 5, Ephesians 4, 6, 7, and 8. 8. Because when the apostle, excuse me, when the apostle proclaims death to be the wages of sin, he doth not affirm life eternal to be the reward of good works, but the free and gracious gift of God, which we obtain by Christ, even in our sanctification, whereof the Apostle here in Romans 6.23. Which free gift hath for its end eternal life? Not that it merits this, for then it should not be a gracious gift, but because Christ hath merited this for us, and shall a free grace give it to us as the following words, through Jesus Christ our Lord, show. Ninth, because God will have us to buy without money or price wine, milk, honey, that is, to receive all things requisite and necessary for our spiritual life for nothing, and eternal life itself. Isaiah 55, verses 1, 2, and 3. Tenth, because Christ should not be a perfect Savior if anything from us were to be added to the righteousness of his merit. But Christ is a perfect Savior, Ephesians 1, verse 7, and Ephesians 2, verses 7, 8, and 9, 1 John 1, verse 7, and Acts 4, verse 12. Eleven, because our best works have such a mixture of corruptions and sin in them that they deserve his curse and wrath, so far are they from meriting. Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all, saith the prophet, as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. Twelve. If the works of regenerate men did deserve eternal life, then should the whole contrivance of the gospel be subverted, and the same very way of life laid down which was in the covenant of works, as is clear from Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. The gospel is so contrived by the infinite wisdom and goodness of God 
that there is a judicial transferring of our sins as a debt on Christ the cautioner and a translation of his righteousness and merit to be imputed to us for our justification without the least respect to our works. This ends side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. Thank you. Question seven. Are works done by the unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands and of good use, both to themselves and others, are they, I say, sinful and cannot please God? Yes. Haggai 2, verse 14, Titus 1, 15, Amos 5, 22, Hosea 1, 4, Romans 9, 16, Titus 3, verse 5. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that not only all the works of unregenerate men are not sinful, but also that some of their works do indeed merit and deserve somewhat from God, namely, as they speak, by merit of congruity, that is, as they are agreeable to the law of God? Yes. There is also, as they say, a merit of condignity, by which the works of the regenerate, which follow justification, deserve eternal life, not from the imputation of Christ's righteousness, but from their own intrinsic worth and proportionalness to the reward? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because as a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt rotten tree bring forth good fruit. Matthew 7, verse 18. Second, because all unregenerate men are dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Third, because all the works of unregenerate men are done without faith and so cannot please God. Hebrews 11, 6. Romans 14, verse 23. Fourth, because if unregenerate men were able to do good works or perform any duty which deserves somewhat from God, then would it follow that a man were able to do some good of himself, which is contrary to John 15, verse 5, Philippians 1, 13. Fifth, because it is clear from Scripture that before renewing grace, all are the children of wrath, who of themselves cannot have a good thought, nor any act of concurrence or putting themselves forth to the utmost for their own conversion. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Therefore, no plea for merit by any improvement of men's natural abilities. Romans 9, 15. Chapter 17 of the Perseverance of the Saints. Question 1. Can they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, either totally or finally fall away from the state of grace? No. Shall they certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved? Yes. Philippians 1, 6, 2 Peter 1, 10, John 10, 28 and 29, 1 John 3, verse 9, 1 Peter 1, 5 and 9. Well then, do not the Papists, Socinians, Arminians, and some ringleaders among the Quakers err, who maintain that the saints may totally and finally fall away? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the saints are built upon a rock and not upon the sand. Therefore, when temptations of any kind assault, they can never fail, nor can the gates of hell prevail against them. Matthew 7.24 and Matthew 16, verse 16 and 18. Second, because he that hath begun a good work in the saints will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, verse 6. Third, because Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 35, 38, and 39. Fourth, because they that fall away have never had true justifying faith. Luke 8, 3, and 16. 1 John 2, verse 19. Fifth, because it is impossible for the elect to be seduced. Matthew 24, verse 24. I say impossible, not in respect of the will and power of the elect themselves, but in respect of the immutability of God's decree concerning them, and of his purpose of keeping them powerfully against seduction, according to his promises of which he cannot repent. John 10:28, Romans 8, 38 and 39, 1 Peter 1, verse 5. 6. Because they that believe in the Son of God have life eternal. 1 John 5, 13. 
John 6, 47, 54, and 58. And they have passed from death unto life, and shall never thirst nor hunger any more. John 6, 35. 7. Because God hath promised in his covenant that though he chastise his own children for their faults, yet he will never take away his mercy and loving kindness from them. Psalm 89, verse 30, 31, 32, 33, 34. Jeremiah 32, verse 38 and 39 and 40. 8. Because that golden chain that Paul speaks of cannot be broken. Romans 8, 30. Whom he did predestinate, he also called. Them he also called. Ninth, because Christ says, This is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I shall lose nothing. John 6:49. Tenth, because we are all kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. Eleventh, because he hath prayed for us that our faith fail not. Luke 22, verse 32, John 17, verse 20. Question 2. Can believers by reason of their sins and failings incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgment upon themselves? Yes, Isaiah 64, verse 5, 7, and 9, Ephesians 4, verse 30, Psalm 51, 8, 10, and 14, Revelation 2, verse 4, Song of Solomon 5, 2, 3, 4, and 6, Isaiah 63, verse 17, Psalm 37, verse 3 and 4, 2 Samuel 12, verse 14, Psalm 89, verse 31, 32, Mark 16, verse 14, and 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. Well then, do not the antinomians err who maintain that the sins of the regenerate do not displease God and cannot grieve His Holy Spirit, and that believers are not chastised in any wise for their sins? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the prophet says, Thou art wroth, for we have sinned. Isaiah 64, verse 5. Second, because it is said that the thing which David had done, namely his murder and adultery, displeased the Lord. 2 Samuel 6, verse 27. Third, because the scriptures testify that the sins of believers grieve his Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Fourth, because the saints, by reason of their sins, are deprived of some measure of grace and consolation. Psalm 8, verse 9. Revelation 2, verse 4. Fifth, because the Lord hath inflicted temporal punishments upon believers for their faults. Psalm 89, verses 31 and 32, 2 Samuel 12, verse 11, and 2 Samuel 24, verse 15, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Chapter 18 of Assurance of Grace and Salvation. Question 1. May they who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity and endeavor to walk in all good conscience before Him, may they, I say, be certainly assured in this life that they are in a state of grace and being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given them of God, may they without extraordinary revelation attain thereunto? Yes. 1 John 2, verse 3. 1 John 3, verse 14, 18, 19, 21, 24. 1 John 5, Corinthians, excuse me, Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12. Ephesians 3, verses 17 and 18. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that no man can be sure, namely, sure by divine faith of God's peculiar favor toward himself without extraordinary revelation? Yes. By what reason are they confuted? First, because the apostle commands us, saying, Brethren, give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Hebrews 6, verse 11. Second, because the apostle commands the Corinthians to examine themselves whether they be in the faith. 
2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Third, because the scriptures propose and set forth sure marks and tokens by which a believer may be infallibly assured that he is one of the number of Christ's sheep. John 10, verses 4 and 5, 27 and 28. And that he is one of Christ's disciples. John 8, verses 3, excuse me, John 13, verses 3 and 5. Nay, it is the scope of the whole first epistle of John to propose such sure marks to believers whereby they may know that they have life eternal. 1 John 5.13 Fourth, because the true believer may be persuaded that neither death nor life nor any other thing can separate him from the love of Christ. Romans 8 verses 38 and 39 Where the apostle not only speaketh of himself but of them to whom he writes. Fifth, because believers have received the spirit of adoption, whereby they cry, Abba, Father, and he himself witnesseth with their spirit that they are the children of God. Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. 6. Because believers have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that they might know the things that are freely given to them of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Question 2. Is this certainty a bare conjectural and probably improbable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope? No. But is it an infallible assurance of faith? Yes. Hebrews 6, 11, 17, 18, and 19. Well then, do not the Papists and Arminians err who maintain that the assurance of salvation is only conjectural or at the most only probable which have for its foundation a failing and fading faith? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because assurance is from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. Romans 8, verse 15. Second, because this assurance is founded on the promises of God, who cannot lie. Isaiah 45, verse 10. John 3, 36. Second, or third, because believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of their inheritance. But he that receiveth an earnest not only hath right to possession, but knows all surely that he hath the, that right, and shall be put in the actual possession thereof. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Fourth, because God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie we might have strong consolation Hebrews 6 verses 17 and 18 question 3 is the infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation and upon the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made yes Hebrews 6 17 and 18 2 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5, 1 John 2, verse 3, and 1 John 3, verse 14, and 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Well then, do not the antinomians err who maintain that none ought or can gather any comfort or assurance of salvation from his own works of holiness, but that a believer ought to lean and rest upon the alone testimony of the Spirit without any marks or signs, from which testimony he may, say they, be fully assured of the remission of his sins and by his own salvation? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, from the example of the saints who gathered their comforts from the fruits of faith and works of holiness as David did. Psalm 119, verse 6, and as Paul did. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Second, from the reckoning up of marks which are held out in Scripture by which believers may be known from unbelievers as mutual love, John 13, verse 35, observing and keeping His commandments, 1 John 2, verse 3, doing of righteousness, 1 John 3, 14, and loving the brethren. Third, because unless faith be proven by marks, true faith cannot be discerned from presumption Neither can assurance rightly founded be discerned from a delusion of Satan. 1 John 4, verse 2. Fourth, because reason requires that from the knowledge of the effect we should come to the knowledge of the cause according to that of Matthew 7, verse 16. 
fit because marks of grace have so much clearness in themselves that they will even beget in others a judgment according to charity concerning the election of others therefore much more in these same very persons who are able to discern and know better their own hearts 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 3 and 4 Question 4 Doth this infallible assurance belong to the essence of faith? No May a true believer wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it? Yes 1 John 5.13 Isaiah 50 verse 10 Mark 9 verse 24 Psalm 88 throughout Psalm 77 to the 12th verse Well then, do not the antinomians err who maintain that the assurance of salvation is faith itself and that faith is nothing else but the echo of the soul answering the spirit my sins are forgiven me? Yes By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the sealing of the Holy Spirit which is the earnest of our inheritance is given to believers after they have believed Ephesians 1 verse 13 and 14 Second, because believers may sometimes not know that they have eternal life 1 John 5 13 And he that feareth the Lord obeying the voice of his servant may walk in darkness Isaiah 50 verse 10 Third, because if this assurance which takes away all doubting as the antinomians affirm were of the essence of faith there should not be any degrees of faith which is contrary to Mark 9 verse 24 Matthew 8 verse 10 Matthew 15 verse 28 Fourth, because there are evident examples in scripture from the experience of the saints as that of faithful Heman who was thus complained in Psalm 88 Why castest thou off my soul? Why hidest thou thy face from me? And of faithful Asaph under very sad exercise Psalm 72 to the 10th verse Question 5 Does this assurance of salvation incline men to looseness? No 1 John 2 1 Romans 8 1 and 12 1 John 3 verse 2 and 3 1 John 1 6 and 7 Romans 6 verses 1 and 2 Titus 2 11 12 and 14 in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 well then do not the papists err who maintain that the doctrine of assurance of salvation is of its own nature hurtful to true piety and inclines men to sin and wickedness yes by what reasons are they confuted first because the apostle Peter argues the contrary way, way and infers a far other conclusion namely because believers know they, have, they are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, they ought to pass the time of their sojourning here in fear. 1 Peter 1, 17, 18, 19. Second, because the Apostle Paul, who was certainly persuaded of his interest in Christ, rejects and abominates that conclusion with indignation and wrath. Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. Third, because from the promise that God is the Father of believers, the Apostle exhorts the Corinthians by consequence to cleanse themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and to perfect holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 Fourth, because they who are in Christ to whom there is no condemnation and are assured of it walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Romans 8 verse 1, 12, 38, and 39 Fifth, because a believer knowing God to be merciful concludes that God ought to be feared. Psalm 130, verse 4. Sixth, because whosoever hath the hope, namely that he shall see Christ and be made like unto him, he purifies himself as he is pure. 1 John 3, 3. Seventh, because it is evident from the example of those who were persuaded by their salvation, who yet live piously and holy, Holily, as Paul, Romans 8.38, compared with 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Acts 25, verse 26. Next, we have the example of Abraham, Genesis 17.1, compared with Romans 4, 18, 19, and 20. Question 4. Are true believers, when they fall into some special sin, which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, destitute of the seed of God and life of faith, 
No. 1 John 3, verse 9. Luke 22, verse 32. Well then, do not the Quakers and others err who maintain that true believers, falling into some special sin, can have nothing of the life of faith and seed of God in them? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 1 John 3, verse 9. For his seed remaineth in him, that is, doth not totally perish, but abideth thenceforward, working the fruits of regeneration once begun in them. Philippians 1, verse 6. Second, because although Peter fell into that grievous sin of denying his master thrice, yet he still retained that seed of God and life of faith and love to Christ. Because Christ had said unto him, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. Luke 22, verse 32. The like may be said of David and others of the saints of God, who by falling into some special sins have wounded the conscience and grieved the Holy Spirit. This ends tape number five of Truth, Victory Over Error by David Dixon. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Truth, Victory Over Error by David Dixon, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.